I want to welcome everyone to the January mid-month meeting. Um, this is a public meeting. Um, it's designed um, as a study session, typically, on various topics. And today, we'll be focused on floodplain and green infrastructure. Um, given this is a hybrid format meeting, I'd like to go to Becky to um, talk about the rules of the meeting. Thank you very much. I'll just uh, go over our, our, the usual kind of script that we do before these meetings. Um, as you mentioned, this is a hybrid uh, meeting, so we will be um, facilitating via Zoom and in person. Um, this is being uh, uh, broadcast on the city's YouTube channel. Um, just as a reminder, please mute yourself if you're um, not speaking. And the chat function has been disabled and all chats will go directly to the Zoom facilitator. And um, the city does reserve the right to mute or turn off individual videos to minimize distractions during the meeting. And I think that, that about covers it. Awesome, Becky, thank you so much. Um, before we dive in and turn this over for a topic today, um, I'd like to welcome Mr. Mike Kelso, um, who's a brand new planning commissioner um, serving uh, from the city of Eudora, which is kind of a cool, great add to uh, uh, this group of folks. Mike, yes, welcome. You're not, I uh, don't want to put you too much on the spot uh, this morning, but I want to give you a warm welcome to this really great group of, uh, of folks that are um, doing the county's business. Thank you. You bet. We'll, and we'll see you uh, for sure at the very next uh, um, planning commission meeting. Um, make sure that in between now and then you've got access to all the materials and, and things that you need to jump right in. With that, Becky, can I, uh, who am I going to turn to for presentation today? Well, before we start that exciting, uh, I know we're all, everybody's excited to jump into that. Let me give you a, a really big a, a brief update on our January PC um, agenda items and kind of a glimpse into our February items. If you oh, allow wonderful. me just a second here to find my notes on that. So our, our um, January meeting is going to be uh, two nights, and uh, that'll be Monday the 23rd and Wednesday the 25th. Um, on uh, uh, Monday, as much as we uh, would have loved to, to keep uh, Monday dedicated solely to discussing, um, further discussing wind regulations, um, we have a lot of items on the agenda for this month, and so we did have to put some agenda items on Monday besides that. So there will be... Um, uh, a preliminary plat um, for your discussion. This is a uh, property at um, 1630 Oxford Road that's um, not platted now. So the request is um, to plat that property. There is a variance request associated with that. It's bounded by um, two local roads to the north and the south that don't have the um, uh, required right-of-way. So there's a, a right-of-way variance associated with that plat. Um, there's also a another right-of-way um, and cul-de-sac with variants um, that'll also be up for your consideration that, that day. And then we have um, two conditional use permits that'll be before you. Um, one is for a communication tower in the county. Um, and then the other is for a um, landfill at an existing quarry. 
Um, we have a rezoning request for property in the county. Um, rezoning request is we go from uh, AG1 agricultural to AG2 transitional agricultural. And then last item um, on the agenda then would be that um, discussion about the further discussion about the Windrex. I would note that um, as I'm uh, listing these items, it's in no particular order, the order of the agenda hasn't been set. Okay, so there's no questions on that. On Wednesday, then, um, we have um, um, a couple uh, preliminary development plans. Uh, one is that uh, item that was deferred from your meeting last month that's coming back for your consideration. As, re as you recall, there was a um, variance request um, uh, associated with that, which was the reason for that deferral to give staff more time to look at that. Uh, so that's coming back. Um, the other preliminary plat has a rezoning request that's um, I'm sorry, the other preliminary development plan has an associated rezoning request with that. That's for property at uh, 3633, which is the southeast corner of Peterson and Monterey Way. Um, this would be um, for development of um, residential development. Um, and then there is a rezoning request for property at um, 809 West 22nd Terrace and 803 West 22nd Terrace. This is for the property that's um, uh, adjacent actually to 23rd Street. This would be familiar to you. This is a rezoning request that came a few months back um, to facilitate the development of a um, coffee shop. This rezoning request has been um, uh, staffly substantially different. It is uh, still a request to rezone, but only a portion of the residential property to the north. Um, basically, it would uh, the request would uh, bring that um, northern zoning boundary of the CS up by 34 feet and align it with the CS zoning district that is um, there off to the west of that property. So it's uh, a request to rezone 34 feet of the residential portion of the property to commercial and then keeping the remainder residential. That will all make much more sense when Sandy is explaining it to you. Um, and then we have a, a um, annexation request that will be um, for 143 acres. Um, this is for property at the southeast corner of um, SLT and uh, US 59. Um, and then we have a rezoning request um, at 6150 Kenridge Drive. This is property that was um, annexed and given a zoning district of UR, which is urban reserve. Um, now the um, property owner has requested a uh, base zoning district um, to facilitate development of a community commercial district. Um, and then uh, the last item I want to bring to your attention is that we will have the consultants that are working on the land development code joining us on Wednesday, and they'll be giving us um, an update uh, and, and uh, um, an opportunity to provide some feedback on, on that, uh, um, on the code assessment um, portion of that that's been completed so far. Okay. Um, so that, in a nutshell, is uh, what your uh, January looks like. If there are any questions, um, I'll keep February brief and just to say that it is also looking uh, to be another uh, a big agenda. Looks like we'll have two nights, probably be an opportunity, probably be another situation where um, it may be difficult to have uh, just wind regs on the Monday night meeting. We may have to split that up, but um, we're still working on that. So that is your future outcast. Outstanding. Becky, thanks a million.
Folks, any questions before we move on? Comments? All right. Now, Becky, who do I turn to? I believe that uh, our esteemed Luke Mortensen is going to be going first. Luke, welcome. Floor is yours. Good morning, everybody. I'll do my best to address kind of both of you, both groups of you. Um, first of all, I'd like to introduce myself. I've been lucky these last couple of months and have not had many planning commission items. So there are a bunch of new faces I've never met. So I'm Luke Mortensen. I'm one of the planners here. Um, and so it's nice to meet you. And saying that, I know I'll just be assigned a bunch of really complicated projects in the next couple of months. So I'm sure I'll see you soon. Let's go ahead and pull up the presentation, please. Um, so a couple of months ago, actually, let me begin somewhere else. Um, we are code mandated to, or because our code has floodplain management regulations, part of that is having a floodplain administrator. And on paper, Jeff is our floodplain administrator. Um, he may think he's Superman and can do everything, but he can't. And so Amy, the assistant director, and myself generally assist with most of the floodplain items. Um, Douglas County has their own floodplain management regulations within the Douglas County zoning codes, um, and their staff handle floodplain items in the county. So today I'll be focusing on floodplain in the city. And then kind of just to tack on a little bit of what I just said, floodplain, it can be fairly complicated and there's a bunch of um, a bunch of different standards to it. So if there are questions today that I can't answer, um, I'm happy to do some follow-up research and send that off in an email later. We do that all the time for folks that have questions. So with that, we'll go ahead and get started, please. So the first one is just a picture of both the city boundaries and the county boundaries with the mapped floodplain. So I'm sure most of you guys are familiar with floodplain maps. These are distributed by FEMA and uh, we adopt them not annually, but um, every couple of years. We'll see that in a little bit. And these are published uh, in uh, numerous places. They're most easily accessible in our city interactive map and on the Douglas County Parcel Viewer. So just kind of big picture, you can see that there is significant amount of mapped regulatory floodplain in Lawrence and Douglas County. Obviously near the Kansas River Channel and the Wakarusa River Channel are the most intense floodplains, but you'll see that they do kind of extend in little, little arms, little you know trails through some of the tributaries. So that could be Burroughs Creek, Brook Creek, Atchison, um, Nate Smith has floodplain around it. So it's, it is located throughout much of the city. Slide, please. So this is kind of um, the, the textbook slide. Um, some important definitions to be thinking of. We are gonna be talking about base flood and the base flood elevation a lot. And the base flood does not have a number, like a elevation or a water surface elevation attached to it. It's not so clean like that. The base flood is the flood identified by FEMA that has a 1% chance of being equaled or exceeded every year. 
We used to call that the 100-year floodplain. We're moving away from that because there's been some really interesting studies about how people understand and make decisions about risk when you talk about things in terms of percentages and have, you know, yearly chances, that sort of thing. So I'll refer to both, but just know that going forward, most text and most um, industry, you know, floodplain items you'll see will begin to refer to it as 1% chance. So this, the base flood elevation is that 1% flood elevation. And then when you begin to make decisions about elevation and flood and locating in the floodplain or locating near floodplain, you're going to be using that base flood elevation and all of your numbers are going to be coming off of that. So moving down to those bottom three boxes, we think in kind of three different columns. We think of the regulatory floodplain, the regulatory floodway, and the unregulated floodplain. The regulatory floodplain um, on the previous slide was all of the solid color, the solid pink and the solid red. And I've highlighted in yellow the three um, special flood hazard area, the flood zones that we use the most in Lawrence. Zone AE, zone AH, and zone AO. So the zone AE is the most common. That's the 100-year floodplain. That's the 1%, the area that has a 1% chance of flood um, as identified by FEMA. And it's our most accurate because we have a known BFE. There's been hydraulic and, um, uh, hydraulic and hydrologic studies on this floodplain. It's been identified by FEMA. It's been backed up by you know, our state division of water resources. It's the most well-known. Zone AH is similar. It's been studied. It has a known BFE. We can, we can you know, give somebody an exact um, number of the base flood elevation. It just has a little bit different characteristics. It has ponding characteristics. Most of our AH is in um, North Lawrence, and there'll be some maps coming up that we can take a look at. And then finally, zone AO is similar. Except for ponding, it has more of a sheet flooding characteristics. And so those are the those are the floodplain that we work with most of all. The regulatory floodway is the most easy way to think about it is the channel. Now it's a little bit more than the channel. It gets a little bit complicated because it's the area beyond the river channel that um, is required to move a certain amount of water during flooding events. But the easiest way to think of it is just the, the flood channel itself. So that could be the Kansas River Channel and the area around it. That could be the Wakarusa River Channel and the area around it. It could be the Naismith Drainage Way and the area around it. And then finally, the unregulated floodplain. There are a number of zones that have moderate to low or undetermined risk that we don't typically use or see in Lawrence. The most that you will see in Lawrence are Zone X and Zone X levy. Zone X is area outside of the identified floodplain, so they're beyond even the 500-year flood. You'll notice that it says moderate to low risk. Even if you're not located in an identified flood zone, you know, of course, you always have that risk for flooding, and so we would never say nobody has you know, no risk for flooding. And then we, speci we specify Zone X levy because this is an area that has a reduced risk of flooding because of a certified levy. If that levy didn't exist, 
that floodplain would be different. You might likely have one of the regulatory floodplain uh, zones. And so most of North Lawrence has that zone X levy designation. Our levy on the north side of the river is a certified levy. Um, and, uh, and, and Matt Bond works with the, the Army Corps, handed that over to the city, and Matt Bond, part of his position is continuing that certification of that levy. So let's move on, let's. So here, hopefully, we'll make some of that make sense. I picked three different areas that um, kind of exemplify what we were just talking about. On the far left is Burroughs Creek Park and the bike path and the new splash pad kind of between 13th and 15th streets. You will see that the channel of Burroughs Creek is that dark red. That's the regulatory floodway. And like I was saying, it's more than just the channel itself. It's the area around it that's required to convey a certain amount of water during certain flooding events. The light pink is the zone AE. That's our common 1% annual chance of a flooding event. And you'll notice that it, it encapsulates part of the park, part of the new splash pad, a number of parcels and a number of houses too. And then you'll see zone um, X is labeled there as well. Those are the uh, reduced risk, but of course there's always risk. In the middle, we have uh, Lions Park up in North Lawrence. This has that zone AH that we were talking about, also the 100 year 1% floodplain, but with those ponding characteristics. And so you might be able to just, you know, having anecdotal knowledge of living in Lawrence, you might know, yeah, Burroughs Creek does flood really quickly. And then typically it will kind of reduce back down in a couple hours or a couple of days. That's what we would think of as a rapid rise, rapid fall flood zone. Um, and that's why it has that AE. The AH is a little bit different. North Lawrence doesn't have the, the rapid moving water in a channel, it ponds easily, and then it might recede back over time. And so the flood, the flood maps take that into account. And then finally, on the far right is our zone A. That's um, the Lake Albemarle area on the southwest side of town. This is a floodplain that we've identified as a regulatory floodplain, but we don't have, or FEMA doesn't have, known base flood elevations. And that's okay, but what that means is if somebody wants to propose some sort of improvement or do work in that zone A area, part of their responsibility is working with the surveyor or a, a certified engineer to help determine that BFE. You can determine BFEs with a number of studies and that's a little bit outside of what we would do. The city would not be determining anybody's BFE for them but we would require an engineer to provide that, that data for us. Next slide, please. So why do we regulate the floodplain? For a number of reasons, um, primarily for protection, protection of people, protection of property, personal property, protection of the built environment um, from known risks. We know that flood risks exist. Ensuring federal flood insurance. I'll talk more about this in a little bit, but in order to get reduced rates or flood insurance at all from the, uh, from the federal government, we have to have these floodplain management regulations in place. There is um, tax dollars to be saved by um, 
you know, having flood uh, uh, floodplain management regulations when you don't have to spend as much public money as public funds on um, rebuilding and cleaning up after flooding events. Avoiding liabilities, these are preventing, you know, um, injurious events and injurious actions, both to people and property. And then, of course, kind of similar, reducing future flood losses, um, which we know are becoming more frequent and more intense. These five points I pulled from our Kansas Quick Guide, which is one of our best resources. So does the floodplain change? Yes, the floodplain is not static. And for a number of reasons, it can change and it does change. It typically is not so dramatic, but I picked this example as a, as a good example. Our, uh, the city has adopted and readopts floodplain maps over time. Um, it depends on when FEMA or when the state has funds available for remapping. It's a resource and time intensive action. And so um, it's not every year. The most recent floodplain maps that are available to the public are on our interactive map, and I clipped those, uh, 2001, 2010, and 2015. When we remap, we don't remap the entire city at once. We'll typically remap individual panels or certain groups of panels. And so some parts of town will have floodplain maps from 2010. Some will have them from 2015. Um, it, it just depends. So this is the corner, the southeast corner of um, 31st of Michigan. You, you'll see in the satellite that it looks like a construction site. Right now, it's becoming the Union at the Loop uh, development. I'm, I'm sure most of you are familiar with that. The maps on the far left are from 2001, obviously, and you can see that there's no regulatory floodplain identified for that area on that map. And so somebody could make a decision, somebody could buy that property, somebody could build something according to those maps. And they would have been held to no floodplain standards. They would have been held to just our regular development codes and development standards. By 2010, a remapping had taken place. And you can see that a number of the different floodplain zones had now been identified, including the regulatory 1% or the 100-year floodplain. And then by 2015, most of that had um, remained. It's a little bit difficult to see, but if you overlaid them, you would see that 2015, the regulatory, that solid color, had extended even further a little bit. So this just shows that the floodplain does change, and it can change for a number of reasons. It can change because our mapping got better, our, our mapping got more accurate, the watershed had been developed further uh, or, or changed. I don't know exactly the history as to why this changed so dramatically. It could have been related to uh, the SLT and work with the Baker wetlands. It could have been that the south side of Lawrence has developed in the last couple of decades uh, with more impervious surfaces, or it could just be that our maps were better able to identify um, the floodplain. Hey, Luke. Yeah. Just a quick question. Um, on that topic of change, why I find myself wondering um, if it would be how difficult it would be to get at an understanding of why it changed. Um, because as, as we, then the commission, think about development projects, think about development work, um, understanding if it might have an impact on, on how the floodplain changes, that might be important. Yeah, and in, in one of the later slides, I'll address how 
one method that we are trying to, that we use to try to um, protect against future flooding events. But like I said, it's a little bit difficult because it could change for a number of reasons. Right. There are a lot of things. Yeah. And, and it's complicated. And that's why the state will hire, you know, consultants who this is their, this is the only thing they do. And it will take them, you know, a significant amount of time to map um, just specific panels. Right now, they're um, Douglas County or portions of Douglas County have been identified for remapping. And that's been a process that I think we've been at least a year and a half in already. So it's it's complicated. And I don't admit to know all the answers. Um, so one question that we get a lot, it's a very common pod question, is, you know, if, if someone's property is um, adjacent to or encumbered by the floodplain, you know, do they need flood insurance? And so the easy answer to that is, we don't know, maybe, but the city does not compel anybody to purchase flood insurance. We're not going to require that as part of a development application. It would not be required um, for approval of anything. We are not going to be asking for that. Who might ask for that is any federally backed mortgage provider, lender, something in that field. That is a um, federal requirement that if you're using federal monies and are and a property is encumbered by the floodplain, you may be required to obtain flood insurance. Now, different lenders have different standards. If the structure is not encumbered, you may not be required. Although I've seen it where even if just parts of the property are encumbered, they're still required to obtain flood insurance. And so that's going to be a decision that folks will have to work with their individual you know, mortgage providers to determine. We can provide floodplain determinations that help to go towards those decisions. And we often do. Um, somebody can give us an address and we can use our the maps to determine if the property or if the structure are encumbered. And then we'll put that on city letterhead and we'll send that along to a mortgage provider, a bank, a lender, or just a property owner. The other item that we like to send along, excuse me, are the ferments. These are a very helpful tool that FEMA provides through the map service center. And the map service center is available to anybody. You can put in an address and it will take you to that individual floodplain panel. And I picked the one, that example property at 31st in Michigan. And it will give you all the identified floodplains. And then we'll have a very helpful key and legend. Um, and so it's just a very clean, you know, certified uh, piece of information that people can send along to whoever it might be, an insurance provider, a mortgage provider, a lender, whatever. So we don't require flood insurance, but somebody else might. So another common question we get is, okay, well, how do I get out of the floodplain? And there are a couple different ways to do that. They mostly center around letters of map change. And so when they're talking about map change, they're talking about changing the, those adopted flood rate insurance maps. And there are a couple different, the most common are LOMAs and LOMERS. And so a letter of map amendment, there's two different types. The first one is where, you know, a, a structure was originally built and it's not in the floodplain. The maps are wrong. It's not in the floodplain. It's, it's just wrong. 
And that happens. These maps are, you know, they're they're detailed and they're accurate, but of course, nothing is completely accurate. And so what they have to do is um, they have to provide additional technical data and that and they'll work with the surveyor or with an engineer and fill out the Loma application and that gets sent to FEMA and FEMA will review and, and approve it. And then that amendment is tacked on to the adopted floodplain map. The map does not change. If you were to go back to our interactive map, the red would still be the same. It would still look like the structure's encumbered, but there would be an amendment that we keep a record of that shows that that structure is actually not in the floodplain. And FEMA keeps a record of that, and we keep a record of that. And when maps are, re are updated and, and, re and, adopt and new maps are adopted, FEMA will send out a validation form that says, we still believe that those structures are in or out of the floodplain. And so we'll maintain that data all the time. The Loma OAS out as shown is similar. That one would be where there's where it's so blatantly not in the floodplain that you might not even need the extra technical data. You can, visual evidence is oftentimes all you need. The letter of map revision is that next stage. That's when the maps begin to actually change. FEMA will update those maps. And um, those typically occur when somebody takes an action to remove themselves out of the floodplain. Most often that's with fill. They'll bring fill dirt to a site and elevate either the structure, a pad, or you know, part of the site out of the floodplain, elevate it above that base flood elevation. Um, and then they will send that data to FEMA and FEMA will revise that map or the next map accordingly. And um, Lomer F is when it's specific to fill, when they specifically use fill, you can use, you can elevate a structure, you know, with piers uh, or different structural techniques. So those are two main ways to elevate and get a Lomer, a Lomer, a letter of map revision. So now we're switched from the floodplain to the floodway. Can I develop in the floodway? That's an easy answer, no. The code is very specific about what types of improvements can be in the floodway. And that's that channel, the dark red channel, that is basically the, the river channel and the area around it. And FEMA and the city have identified almost, almost nothing should be there. That should be free and clear for the movement of floodwaters during a flooding event, except for these identified improvements. And um, so that public improvement would, for bridging the floodway, obviously that's a bridge. Um, you know, the, the new segment of the Lawrence Loop had a bridge that went over the identified floodway, and that did not require a variance. It required a floodplain development permit, but because it was a public improvement for bridging the floodway, it was permitted to be there. So there's a very small, small group of things that can go in that floodway. And it's important that we maintain that. So what's this? That's two, uh, oh, so do any other parts of our code address the floodplain? Obviously, Article 12 does. That's our floodplain management regulations. Of course, that's what it's all about. But there are other sections of our code that address the floodplain. We'll talk a little bit more about the floodplain management overlay district in a little bit. But we have an identified overlay zoning district. 
Um, and so that's in the beginning of the code. And then there are some sections in our platting section. So that's going to be in our eight subdivision regulations where per the planning director's determination, if there's an identified floodplain on a property, we can require that that be incorporated into a drainage easement or some type of, some type of protected easement. Um, we don't always do that, um, but it, it's a tool that we have uh, to use. Another example of somebody doing something similar is they will, when they're replatting a lot or a number of lots, they will plat the floodplain in a separate tract. And that way they can maintain ownership of it, but their principal structure, their house or their garage is not on the same lot. And that is very helpful because then they don't get flagged for having floodplain on their property anymore. And that can have some helpful insurance implications for that. Next slide, please. So do any of our other plans address the floodplain? And that also is yes. Um, these are uh, some, uh, I pulled some clips from our uh, plan 2040, our, our comprehensive plan that has a number of references to the floodplain. They mostly center around chapters two, three, and seven. So environmental and natural resources, obviously, growth and development and then community resources. And, Basically, Plan 2040 is pretty helpful. It really puts a lot of value and significance in the floodplain. It looks to keep, um, you know, specifically industrial uses out of the floodplain areas, um, and then seeks to use uh, the floodplain for low-impact uses, something like a park, recreation, open space uses. And so that's helpful. If we're ever rezoning a property that has floodplain on it, we can look to these, you know, we can look to these clips. And then this is, there's, I didn't go into as much detail here, but some of our other identified smaller area plans, which of course have been adopted into our comprehensive plan, also reference and refer to the floodplain. Um, specifically the Northeast sector plan, which is the portion um, just beyond North Lawrence, um, that really talks a lot about the floodplain because there's a lot of identified floodplain up there. Um, Another planner, Avery, and I had a pre-application meeting recently where there was a potential to rezone and annex a part of a part of this plan area. This plan identifies it as open space because of all of the adjacent floodplain. And so that the Northeast sector plan will be helpful if we have a right of staff report about, you know, should we support annexation? Should, should we support rezoning to a new city district? Um, well, what is what does the Northeast sector plan say about it? What is you know how close is the floodplain? Should it remain open space? So that's just some an example of how these plans have worked the floodplain into them. So why can't I just get a variance? Um, the Planning Commission grants variances from certain parts of the code, but I'm sure you're all aware that we also have the Board of Zoning Appeals, and they're typically the body that considers most variances from our code. And our code does allow for variances from Article 12, the floodplain management regulations, and they can and they have granted certain variances from a lot of those standards. We like to begin every conversation about floodplain variances 
by letting people know that it's a very high bar to meet. Not only do they have to meet the general criteria for a variance that anybody would have to meet, but there are, I think, 12 or 13 additional decision-making criteria standards that they have to meet. And these are fairly complicated standards. They're related to the um, hydraulic and hydro static you know forces of the floodplain nearby and how is this going to impact the river channel and how does this impact adjacent you know properties downstream and so there are technical questions and it's a high bar to meet for for us you know for a reason it's meant to be um it's meant to be difficult the uh, the state and fema can audit our variances at any time and so we have to you know, be very careful and show that, you know, this was an appropriate use of a variance and it was an appropriate, you know, uh, diversion from the existing standards. And so one thing a variance will not do is it will not mean you don't have to get flood insurance. Um, in fact, if we approve a variance, we are mandated by our own code to provide a letter to the applicant saying, you know, your flood insurance you're, you, you may still be required to have it. This is not going to change it. Don't be surprised when you have a high rate of, you know, high insurance premium. And then finally, I picked an example where um, they did get a variance. This was our one of our more recent floodplain variances. They don't come along very often. But um, the new picnic shelter in Bertram Park. The uh, applicant was our Parks and Rec Department and their contractor. And they were able to show that um, it would not have a negative impact, an adverse impact on the adjacent Kansas River Channel and the flood way. This is in the flood way. That's what the variance was for, was for building one of those improvements that we identified. It was not one of those identified improvements in the flood way. And kind of where we, where we got to was, you know, um, the flow of water is not going to be you know, impeded extremely. We just had those four posts. It reduced the, that shelter smaller than what was there before. Um, it's going to have a negligible impact on the floodway. And so that's how they were able to build that. So beyond variances, how do we regulate development in the floodplain? Generally, that's through our floodplain development permit. I just took a screen grab of our, our front page, but that's available on our forms and application page next to any other application, building permit, site plan, minor sub, all that. And that is, um, that's identified, uh, let me back up. We identify four applicants if they'll need to submit a floodplain development permit pretty early on in the process. So they'll know, okay, I've got to do a site plan, I've got to do a building permit, and I've got to do a floodplain development permit. So they will typically submit these with the help of their architect or their engineer. And the floodplain development permit is helpful for ensuring that all of Article 12 is met. Article 12 has all of the standards that they need to meet. And there's quite a few, but the two most important are elevation and impervious surface. And elevation depends on if it's residential or if it's non-residential. If you're non-residential, you only have to elevate one foot above that base flood elevation. If you're residential, you have to elevate two feet above that base flood elevation. And then we have impervious surface standards as well. And so typically you can use a lot of the same 
materials you can use your building plans you can use your site plans and we can use those to do our analysis and so typically it's not a lot of extra work for applicants um, but it is an extra step that obviously somebody who is developing outside of the floodplain would not have to do oh sorry we'll go back um, a couple of other documents that we use and, and that are helpful are elevation certificates. Those are certified um, by a surveyor prior to final inspection of a structure, residential or non-residential. And that's basically showing to us that the final constructed, you know, the final product is at the elevation that they said it was going to be and what it was approved for. Um, no rise certifications are another engineered document. They show that that new structure or that new fill will not raise the floodplain. And those are um, those are by engineers or by surveyors that a no rise is not something that city staff would do. And then hydrologic and hydraulic H and H studies are similar. They are studies that show how that proposed development will impact the larger floodplain around it. And so those are all um, helpful pieces of information that we may require depending on the project. So continued with how do we regulate development, um, and this may speak to the chair's question a few slides ago, is zoning. We have a floodplain management regulation zoning overlay. It's kind of a mouthful. Um, for properties that were annexed after a certain year, the year it's 2003, if they have floodplain on them, they're required to have a separate zoning overlay for that area and some of the area around it. And that's the floodplain overlay. And what that does is that gives us automatic floodplain protections from the get. And you'll see that this is that same property at 31st in Michigan. This was annexed in 2016. And so we were able to uh, require that in order to build the multifamily use, the union at the loop, they had to get the RM15 district, which they did, but they also had to get the RM-FP district. And so once you're in that dash FP, we get all of our elevation, we get all of our impervious standards, we get all of our floodplain standards in place. And so from the get, these properties are gonna be built in a way that should hopefully protect them against flooding events. Um, it goes beyond, you'll see that the red zoning line on the right, it goes beyond the solid floodplain shade a little bit. And what we do is we require the zoning line to be, it's called freeboard, um, but an easy way to think of it is the zoning has to extend out so far uh, to a two foot elevation change. The elevation has to go up two feet. And so what that, what that does is any structure, even if it's not in that red shaded area, it might be. We've identified this area on the outside, on the edge of town. It will likely, the floodplain will likely change as Lawrence grows and develops. And so that dash FP overlay has taken that into account and has room to grow. It has room for the floodplain to grow. And then those structures will already have been built accordingly. A little bit complicated, but it's a, it's a tool that we have to ensure that hopefully in the future, if and when the floodplain changes, we'll you know we'll be ready for it. Those structures will already be ready for it. 
The other way that we regulate for existing structures is tracking for what's called substantial improvement. And substantial improvement is a FEMA standard where you have to track the value of all, not all, of certain improvements made to structures in the floodplain. And you are tracking um, anything from the value of, of, um, of a building addition or form work or you know, foundation work. There are some, what I think we would call soft costs that are not tracked, but a lot of costs are tracked. And what you do is, if you reach a value that is 50% or more of the structure's identified appraised value, then it has to come into compliance with the code. That's a, that, that is big. If you have a structure that was built before we identified the floodplain, you know, it's built just like a regular structure, coming into compliance with the floodplain management standards could be difficult. That would mean raising the structure. It could mean removing impervious surface. It could mean um, rewiring or replumbing a structure so that those utilities are flood-proofed. It's, it's pretty significant. And so it's very important that we track this stuff very carefully. And this is an example of a structure in North Lawrence. This is actually Johnny's North um, that we are tracking for compliance. And we track it because not only is it substantial improvement in one go, in one, you know, in one instance, but we have a rolling five-year period where we're tracking for the same thing. So after five years, if they hit that 50% value or go above it, then the same thing happens. They've got to come into full floodplain compliance. Um, uh, lost my train of thought. You'll see that, um, oh, I, I remembered. We use the county, we use the county appraiser's value of the structure and we take away the land. And the reason for that is because then we can, we don't want the value to be inflated or depressed by the land around it. We want to know just the value of the structure. And so we take our information every year from the county. We will accept a private appraisal of a structure if somebody feels like they don't agree with the county's appraisal, and we will accept that and use that number as well. Typically, most people will just go with the county's number. And you'll see that the Johnny's North structure is at 22.4% of the value. All those improvements since 2017 have not reached 50%. So as of now, they don't have to come into full floodplain compliance. If they do an improvement, they recently did a bathroom renovation. Those new improvements have to be compliant, but they don't have to bring the whole, the whole structure in just yet. So we are a CRS and NFIP community, and, and many of you are probably familiar with these. The NFIP program is the National Flood Insurance Program. That is federally backed insurance um, or insurance provided by the federal government to communities who have opted into this program. It, um, it, it's not available to communities who are not identified NFIP communities. And then rolling into that, the CRS is a community rating system. That's a voluntary program as well, where if you exceed the NFIP's minimum requirements for floodplain management, then you can get reduced flood insurance rates provided to your communities, property owners, and residents. Typically, it's a reduction of five. I've seen literature that shows all the way to 40%. And that is all dependent on 
um, how, however many adopted actions your community has taken beyond and the, the NFIP's existing standards. So to make this make a little more sense, the NFIP requires, you know, if we're going to provide federal federally backed insurance to your community members, you know, one new or a new structure or um, a substantially improved structure is going to have to be elevated to that one foot. Well, in Lawrence, one action that we've taken for the, the CRS program is for residential uses, we require them to go even beyond that. We require two foot elevation. And so we get points, we get CRS points for having that higher standard of floodplain management regulation. This is just a map of some of the NFIP and CRS communities in Kansas. Um, and then it's very small, but on the left, you can see the number of NFIP-backed policies for, for the top 50 um, either counties or cities who are NFI communities in Kansas. So what's the future of the flood plan? I know um, one of the discussions that you guys were interested in having was, you know, where are we going with this? And I'm sure most of you are familiar and are with that, you know, the floodplain is only going to become more important. Um, the, the intensity and the number of natural disasters um, declared, you know, financially loss-inducing disasters is increasing over time. Um, and so the floodplain is just going to be something that's going to be more prevalent in all of our lives. We have already touched on it a little bit, but we're but we're no longer using the 100 or the 500-year floodplain terminology. We're looking to um, begin to use the, the, the terminology related to percentage chance. So 1% annual chance, a 0.2% annual chance. And FEMA recognizes that that's a little bit hard to understand. And so one helpful metric that they provide on a lot of their documents is if you have a 30-year mortgage, and you're located within that 100-year floodplain, the 1% annual chance floodplain, what that really means is there's a 26% chance of your property experiencing a flooding event over the lifetime of a 30-year mortgage. And so that helps um, a lot of people understand it in a little bit more, uh, you know, it's a little bit easier to understand. Some other floodplain um, Kind of things in the news that we're seeing a lot is there are growing movements to use um, state or federal funds um, as part of buyout programs. We're seeing this mostly in coastal floodplain areas. And I'll just mention that the coastal floodplain is a completely different animal from our the floodplain that we have, the riverine floodplain. Um, and so you are seeing a lot of states and a lot of municipalities trying to identify funds for buyout programs, uh, specifically kind of like North Carolina, South Carolina, coastal Georgia, you're seeing a lot of that. Another interesting topic that's been identified has been this realization um, among some populations that you know, minority communities, economically disadvantaged communities have been pushed into flood prone areas for hundreds, hundreds of years. Oftentimes, before we identified them as floodplains, they were thought of as low-lying, swampy areas, you know, not great for farming, not great for settlement. And so the most vulnerable populations were often pushed into those areas for a number of different reasons over time. They've 
you know, been, it's been more difficult for those populations to leave those communities. And so they may still be located in those areas. And so those, those groups are dealing with the impact of uh, being located in the floodplain. And then that gets made worse by our, our changing climate and our more, our more active floodplain areas. Kind of bouncing off that a little bit with the idea that there are certain communities who are being disadvantaged, um, there's been identified, you know, some, a place like Miami, which has identified, you know, street flooding, coastal flooding, they're seeing a lot of their inland neighborhoods become more valuable. And a lot of those existing populations who had been minority economically disadvantaged are now being displaced by folks who are moving from the coast inland. Um, and that's just an interesting, that's an interesting um, thing that's going on in a lot of coastal cities we've seen. Um, and then I didn't make a point about this, but but one more final point is FEMA has begun to adjust their um, flood insurance rates that they provide to more align with the actual risk factor. Um, FEMA has not been solvent for like 20 years or so, something like that. And so A, this is them trying to get towards solvency, and B, it's them trying to get the the rate the the rates to accurately reflect the risk, um, and so what happens is people are getting these really dramatic increases in their flood insurance premiums and their in those expenses, and that's often being um, it's often hurting folks who um, have been in the floodplain before you know, identified floodplain maps and did the right thing and bought insurance, well, now they're being basically priced out of their homes. And so FEMA, you know, they're kind of between a rock and a hard place because, you know, increasing the insurance rates is, it's accurately reflecting the risk and it will, over time, move people out of these areas and it will save money and will save lives. But in the meantime, it's it's messy and it's hard because it's hard for the folks who are there. So we are now in a place where with our new land development code, the rewritten code, um, our comprehensive plan would support, you know, increased floodplain regulations um, in that new code. What those are, I don't know exactly yet. I think that will be a conversation between the consultant, the community, and then probably some pretty serious research into what other communities are doing. Um, but this, this would be the time to make changes to our floodplain management regulations if that's something that we want to do. I'll just note that changing Article 12 is a little bit tougher than a regular text amendment. Those revisions to the floodplain standards have to be approved um, and reviewed by the State Division of Water Resources. And there's some, there's some FEMA revision components. So it's a little bit harder. It's not impossible. Um, but, but this would be the time to make those changes, basically. And with that, hopefully some of that made sense. And if you guys have questions, I'm I'm ready for them. Not to stop with the question, just a reminder, the room has a hard stop at nine o'clock again. So we'll have to be out by then. But the one thing I want to say is I think that it's easy to say, like as Luke said, I clearly can't do everything. I think no acknowledge that one. <laughs> there. 
But the, the city is extremely lucky to have Luke and Amy Miller and Matt Vaughn on staff and our experts in this and, and, and know the details and the people and the discussions they have on that one. So we're very lucky to have three experts on staff to help us go through all those programs and different things. Any, any questions for Luke? Yes, I have a, a question. Thanks. Um, thank you very much. There's a lot of information. Yeah. So um, I'm curious about the cumulative impact um, that you mentioned now in that example you showed at 31st Street. Mm -hmm. um, you showed that you, you essentially buffered mm -hmm. to account for future changes, future possible changes in the floodplain. So I'm kind of curious, is there any uh, triggers, red flags that you see when um, you are watching how Lawrence is growing to a uh, red flag or trigger that say, look, this is a big enough development that this may cause some significant changes mm -hmm. in a floodway or a particular area, the floodplain maps in a particular area. Do you look for, yeah. is there a way to do that? Yeah, so a good example might be, you know, if anything were to be built um, south of K-10 and Iowa Street. So we, over the years, we had a couple different you know, variations of development in that area, which has a significant amount of floodway and floodplain. And if something were developed, um, well, let me back up. That area would be similar to the 31st of Michigan. We would require those floodplain areas to have that overlay zoning designation and the area a little bit beyond it. So if anything were to ever be built south of there, a lot of those structures would have to be built elevated or they'd have to be put on pad sites that were elevated. Um, even if they specifically were not in the regulatory floodplain. A development that large would probably be uh, impactful enough that if we were being remapped, we would suggest this. Matt, Amy, and, I, and myself, we work with Division of Water Resources and their remapping consultants to identify areas that would be ready to be remapped. And so we would say this level of development is intense enough. There's enough impervious surface that we recommend this area be remapped in 2023. Now, because it's a such a resource and time intensive process, they may or may not pick that up and, and remap it and give us new floodplain maps for that area. Um, but we can you know, strongly recommend that they select that as a, a remapped area. Now, would that be something if we have a proposal in front of us um, where it looks like this is a significant enough development and a significant enough amount of impervious surface. Um, would that be in sort of our packet as some sort of, I don't know, I don't want to use the word. This is a caveat to this, is that this is a big enough development and it has the potential yeah. to change the floodplain maps. It, I, I don't know if in the past if we've ever um, said that explicitly in any kind of staff report, um, but that would be that would be an interesting thing to begin thinking about. We identify, you know, is this in a historic environment? Is this in a identified floodway or floodplain? Um, but we we typically have not gone that extra step to say, oh, this might impact the larger area. That would be something I would. Can I jump in here for a second, Luke? So having said that, I don't know that most of you realize that right now we're in the middle of an asset ID and identification project that we're doing. So we're going through every storm sewer in town and every structure, and we're videoing and inspecting those. And then on top of that, we're taking the data that we get, 
and we're putting that into a hydrologic and hydraulic study. So at the end of this program, we are going to have every watershed mapped so we know exactly how that's going to happen. So one of the things that I have pushed for since I got here is, hey, I want to I want to have a map so I can have when a development comes in, I can put their numbers into our map and then I can see how it's going to relate to the rest of the watershed. So that's something we're actively doing right now. Now, to your point about development, when something comes in, there have been a handful of uh, developments that have come in that I know, hey, we've had flooding in that area. What are we going to do uh, about um preventing that or, or offsetting that. So at the corner of 23rd and Iowa, for example, when first cafeteria was leveled and they cleaned to scrape the site and then CVS pharmacy came in, at the time I knew 23rd Street and Osdall flooded all the time. And so one of the, one of the requirements we had on that one, and that was based on code, was that they had to do a, a drainage study to show that they weren't going to have any negative impacts or adverse impacts downstream. So that's why they had to put in detention to keep that uh, additional uh, impervious surface from running down to that intersection. Another one would be up at KU when they put the parking lots on the west side of the hill. I said, hey, uh, that was early on. And I said, you've, you've got to do something to mediate that water. So that's why we ended up with the detention basin on the northwest corner of Memorial Stadium. And then, of course, when they built the new indoor practice facility, they've got an a underground detention facility. So as these have progressed, there's a lot of those things that we've picked up. And then the floodplain overlay district has been another extremely helpful tool to help mitigate some of that stuff. The change in floodplain uh, in the mapping that you see at 31st and uh, uh, I uh, Louisiana there was because that used to be a box culvert that went diagonally under the road. Well, when the SLT came in, they made those two large span bridge size structures to help with that. So that was that was one of the reasons that that had changed. And then some of the mapping that they had done uh, with the conditional letter of map amendment uh, took that all into account. So. Just to give you a little overview, that's that's some of the things that we're doing right now, and hopefully at the end of our asset ID program here in the next couple of years, we'll have every watershed in town uh, mapped. Thank you. That's very helpful. Could I ask a question to build on what Matt just said? Um, I'm curious how the how the city or the county keep track of um, flash flooding risk, because obviously the NFIP maps don't cover. Um, I mean, this is all long-term probability of flood risk, but, you know, I live on Tennessee Street, the 700 block of Tennessee, which floods like twice a year, um, only for a few hours. But I'm sure there are, you know, there are properties that are at risk of at least low-level floods that are not covered by NFIP. Um, how does how does the city deal with, with that? Yeah. Is there an, it it sounds like you've got a lot of institutional knowledge, but... Um, do you have a an actual sort of documentation of where those risk areas lie? So to your point, yes, it's mostly institutional knowledge. I was born in Lawrence and have lived uh, most of my life in the city of Lawrence. Um, my stormwater superintendent's the same way. So as far as mapping stuff like that goes, I don't think we've got anything like that. Uh, we do know where, you know, hey, if it's starting to rain really heavy and it comes down, what are our problem areas? And obviously the park's one of them. I hope to solve that quickly with the Jayhawk Watershed Project we've got under design right now. Yeah. Um, 23rd Nosdal was one. We're like, hey, if it's raining hard, go put barricades out. That's one I'm happy to say 
uh, we didn't hold as much as a teaspoon of water in that intersection in any of the flooding events we had in 2019. So um, we've identified, I mean, staff knows where most of those are, at least I hope we do. Um, and then um, we're trying to take steps to, you know, rectify what that storm sewer system around it looks like. But most municipalities design their storm sewer systems to the 10% the uh, exceedance probability or the 10 year design storm. So mm -hmm. like you said, we're trying to get away from the years because, you know, the, the caveat was a lot of times people say, oh, I've had my 100 year store. I'm good for 99. No, that's not how it works. It's 1% chance in any given year you're going to have that flooding event. In 1993, we had back to back months of a 300 year event on the Mississippi River. So. Okay, thank you very much. I have a couple more questions, but I want to anybody else. Um, a couple questions about um, preventing flooding. Um, so I'm I'm curious about any examples uh, where we're moving forward on any green infrastructure. So you mentioned you know that looking at our typical. Um, stormwater infrastructure, um, but is there are there any plans for adding some of the more newer features that we're reading about green infrastructure? Where we're using not only hardscape but plant materials to channel water, move it off um, the streets, put it underground, um, filter it uh, while it's moving. Um, can you give us any examples that have already been constructed or? Are in the plans? Uh, yeah, in fact, uh, that was going to be my presentation. So that's a that's a good segue. <laughs> if you want me to start off now, um, can you see my screen? Is that this the? Yep, we're good. All right. So we don't have a lot of time, so I'm going to fly through most of this. But uh, if most of you don't know me, my name's Matt Bond. I'm the city stormwater engineer. Um, I guess my formal title is engineering program manager, but uh, I was born in Lawrence. Um, I probably paid attention to a lot of flooding events more than most kids because my dad's a civil engineer. Um, we actually had seven feet of water in our basement at the house there on Emerald Drive. And so I am inherently and uh, sympathetic to those who have had flooding problems. So um, with that, I guess I'll just kick it off and, and go through each one of these. So uh, this, I'm just going to give you a brief overview of the, the stormwater utility. So if stormwater crosses um, or it controls or conveys stormwater, it's mine. I'll go through the staffing, our responsibilities. I'll touch on the NPDES program, and then I'll give you some of those examples of those best management practices. So as I said, if it conveys it, so it's either the levee or we've got channels with Naismith or um, some of the streams or riparian channels that we have in town, whether our big box culvert structures or uh, open stream channels, those are the ones that convey. Does it control it? Bowersock Dam, here's a recent shot from last March as we're just finishing up the rehab project on the dam itself. Um, you know, on a smaller scale, curb inlets, on a little bigger scale for for holding large volumes of water back, detention basins, 
and then if the if it crosses it so all of our bridges so in fact i just finished all of our bridge inspections of all of our 25 bridges that we have here in town and a bridge is defined in anything that's open that's uh, 20 feet in span length or greater this would count classify as a bridge this is uh, 27th and cross gate so you measure from the inside to inside and that's a 10 cell box so that's why that's included so once again, here's some of our other bridges that we have in town. And then we have a city staff of myself, an admin assistant who does all of our auditing, pulls those up and goes through uh, uh, an audit of various impervious surfaces. In fact, our GIS group is collectively working on that as we speak. I have a field supervisor and then he has four guys, uh, a field crew, and then we have two in a video truck who is augmenting the the uh, program for asset ID we have going on right now. In addition to that, our environmental group, we have an environmental manager and two environmental technicians that help with uh, erosion and sediment control and illicit discharge. Like I said, I'm going to go through this fast because we don't have a lot of time. And then uh, the responsibilities of the utility or capital improvements to, to uh, implement uh, projects that where we've identified flooding uh, in town, and then stormwater uh, sewer maintenance, and then the review of development, and then pollution prevention. So uh, a brief overview of how big the city is, uh, 34 uh, square miles, we've got 138 miles of pipe, and then we also have four pump stations. And then one other thing I should mention is that we, as far as um, EPA are concerned, we're a phase two community, and I'll get into a little more specifics of that in here in a minute. So as uh, most of you have probably seen on our interactive map, this would be something you would see. So all of those green lines and all those little green boxes are storm sewer infrastructure. So pipes, curb inlets, area inlets, junction boxes. And then in town we have, and, and I haven't included North Lawrence in this on this map because uh, it's an older one, but most of our uh, watersheds, like I said, are in the process of being um, uh, studied so that we can actually get an accurate uh, detail of what what kind of water we're going to have coming off of each one of those. We've had a couple of pilot projects for um, uh, the asset study to get an idea of just how long it's going to take to do all of them. And, and Burroughs Creek was one of them, and it was closed conduits why we picked that one. And then we picked Quail Creek on the west side of Iowa uh, because it goes from closed conduit to open channel to closed conduit. And so that's a different modeling technique. So all of our watersheds either drain straight to the Kansas River, if you're in the dark green, obviously North Lawrence does the same thing, and then everything in the lime green would, would go to the Wakarusa. Obviously, both of these rivers, the confluence is east of town, so whatever ends up in the Wakarusa will end up in the Kansas River. And then a, a brief overview in 72 uh, with the Clean Water Act, they established the NPDES National Pollution Del Discharge Elimination System, which is what we use today for our MS4 permit, which is a uh, separate storm sewer system. And that is what we have to abide by for, uh, that KDHE administers that. EPA does it in some other states for municipalities, but uh, KDHE does it for us. And so that's how we get that the municipally separate storm sewer system. And then along with that, there's minimum control measures. So I'm, I'm giving you all this so I can get to this slide here. So as part of those six minimum control measures, one of the things we look at is the post-construction site stormwater management, which are these best management practices that uh, I'm going to start talking about. 
So one of the other things I wanted to define is usually in uh, floods uh, in uh, stormwater, we're talking about uh, water quantity, which is what Luke just described. So when we get to best management practices, we want to, what's our water quality? So with increased impervious surface, you get increased flooding, and then you also get increased pollution. So with that, it's like, okay, so what does this look like as far as runoff? What's it come off of those different surfaces? So I like this slide because it shows that, hey, before anything was built, you had, you know, 10% was runoff, but then in the lower right, you've got 55% runoff. And then evapotranspiration even decreases. But then your uh, uh, your infiltration obviously decreases as well because now it's it's covered up by impervious surface and it turns into runoff. So this is another slide showing that same thing. I like the big arrow on the right. Hey, your impervious surface has increased even though it's a residential house. So one of the ways we we are hoping to to manage some of that is through best management of our practices or BMPs is what we like to call them. So they're riparian buffer zones, um, roadside drainage treatments, and those will get into grass filter strips and bioswales, pervious and porous pavements, and then uh, on a smaller scale, some rainwater harvesting. So how am I doing on time? Okay. So one of the things that we like to do, uh, and what I'm 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 hoping to get done uh, with our uh, new development code, and Jeff and I and the rest of the planning department have talked about this, is integrating the new plan with a, a stream buffer ordinance and then also a land disturbance permit. So since we're going through a new code, let's let's implement that as part of the new code, is let's put that, that uh, uh, a stream buffer ordinance in that. And so in this this photo, I'm just trying to show, hey, you know, if you stay out of what I call the 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 bandwidth of the stream, so as everybody's seen an aerial photo of a riparian area, how it kind of snakes across the uh, landscape. Well, if you draw a straight line on either side and kind of connect the humps of the snake, so to speak, over time that channel's going to uh, change where it's at. So it, it could be a bend on one and then the next it's moved downstream and it's it it's taken some more of the ground with it. So the idea is, hey, stay out of the bandwidth of the channel. So and then there's various ways to do that. And so I got a couple slides here where I show, hey, these are buffer zones and I want to task uh, um, when we're doing the stream buffer ordinance. I don't want the cookie cutter, hey, we're going to do X number of feet because Lawrence is unique in the fact that we have North Lawrence, which is as flat as a pool table, and then we've got Mount Orient. So what I don't want to say is, hey, here we have a riparian zone. We're going to make all of our, our, our buffers X number of feet. That doesn't make any sense. So there's different ways to set those up, um, you know, through different zones. And then, you know, what do you set that back? So like in this particular <laughs> one, you can see you've got more uh topography or the, the ground raises rapidly. So when you've got steep uh, slopes on either side, obviously your uh, stream buffer can be a lot uh, narrower, but as in say something in North Lawrence, it may be uh, considerably wider. So those are the things that we're looking at as far as stream ordering. Um, uh, we've got that in our GIS toolbox. So that is something that's going to help us determine what those stream buffer widths are within our um, not only the city, but the UGA and even the county. 
So then on roadside drainage, most of the time you'll see things like this back in the Pacific Northwest where you're draining road salts and automotive fluids into a roadside ditch. They can be like a little um, uh, uh, bioswale or a filter, grass filter strip or even, what you know, for lack of a better term, a rainborn. So these are just shots of those different things. I, I kind of like these, but at the same time, I have a problem with if you've got uh, residents who live along that street, who maintains that? Is the homeowner going to do that? Is the is the municipality going to do that? Where's the funding coming from? Is the person who lives next to that actually physically able to do that? So I tend to, I, I my in my personal opinion, I'd say we stay away from stuff like that. But in this particular location, and I think this is over at Johnson County off of Ridgeview uh, on their on their uh, county extension. But this is an excellent example of, hey, they drain off the parking lot. They've got curb cuts to go into a middle channel. We actually have the same setup at KU Park and Ride, which is one of our best BMPs uh, that we have in town. I'd say that's an, an absolute example of something to do, how it's done well. And then when you get to those kind of structures, then you, you put in native plants that will help suck up that water. But more importantly, they suck up those pollutants. In that. And then you change those out after a given specified time, five, seven, 10 years. You take that media out and then you put the peat and the sand and whatever the soil combination is that helps filter that stuff out. And then different plants to do the same thing. Um, here's another side of roadside drainage that uh, they actually used it in twofold, one to handle their stormwater on the right, but also to handle traffic calming because it's it's uh, not a straight shot. And then I think probably the best example, and this gets back to the commissioner's question earlier about what are we going to do for something that's coming up? So one of the things that I've tasked the consultant with on the new uh, uh, oh, what did I do? On our new project, is um, let's use porous pavement or, or pervious pavers on Jayhawk watershed. So in that particular instance, then I can, why am I still doing that? Hold on. <laughs> Technology's great when it works. Hold on, let's see, here we go. There we go. Well, still did it again. Let me mess with one thing. Boy, does not like that. Any rate, on um, on Jayhawk watershed, what I'm proposing to do is use um, pervious pavers. Oh God, did I just? There we go. Anyway, I was going to use pervious pavers on Jayhawk watershed because on that particular one we actually have a vacuum truck that I can come back and, and suck up all of the debris that's in those pervious pavers. So I'm gonna try my PowerPoint one more time because it's irritating me. Close it. I'm gonna give it one more shot and then I'm just gonna wing it for the last five minutes here. All right. There, can you see that? Yes. Okay. 
And I want to go all the way where I was at. Come on. And pick back up on this. Here we go. There, cross section. So one of the things that we can do um, is the different cross sections you get out of that. And then of course, pervious pavement, You uh, one of the other benefits of that is if you use that in parking lots, you don't have to, uh, you don't have to plow it and, and that'll work in the street too. So one of the options that we're talking about on Jayhawk is we use pervious pavers because, hey, that's a, a really good best management practice, but then it will also help uh, our water quality aspect of it too. And then if we use it in the street on the smaller snowfall events, we won't have to plow the snow because the ground will heat it up and it'll take it straight into the ground. So we have a lot of different examples of pervious pavers or uh, grass pavers and boy, it does not like that at all. Just did it again. So what I was trying to get to is we have a handful of locations in town. So Walmart on 6th Street, there's grass pavers right there next to the, the, the on the south side of that parking lot. Prayer Park Nature Center has grass pavers uh, immediately to the west of the building. River Rock Dental has pervious concrete off of 23rd Street. KU's um, parking lot uh, that is between Murphy and Green Hall has it. And then um, there's an asphalt uh, pavement uh, right next to uh, Star Sign. So these are things we have in the development code right now. Um, one of the things that we do do is if they've gone over their parking requirement, it's uh, chapter 20, article 9, section 20-901, says that if you use, uh, if you've exceeded your, your, your parking, that you have to put in a best management practice. And most of the time, what they'll do is they will pick a um, uh, pervious parking pavement to to overcome that and then last but not least is our rainwater harvesting and then we used to do a rain barrel uh workshop and i used to get those from coca-cola and we would do uh they would donate the big uh 50 55 gallon uh barrels that they had for their syrup that they would use and then we'd have a couple uh uh, workshops out at to the 4-H grounds. Unfortunately, Coca-Cola stopped using the 50 and went to a 250-gallon tote. So kind of hard for people to take those home in their cars. And then the uh, last I'd mentioned, since we're running out of time, like I said before, we're looking at for the land development code uh, in, in incorporating a, a land disturbance permit and then a stream buffer ordinance. And so... Hey, Matt. Hey, Matt. Matt yeah. to, to to that point, um, you had to go through that pretty quickly. There's a fair amount of sophistication um, in all of the things that you've walked through and a fair amount of variability, I would say, in, in how a solution might find itself into a, into a project. So my question is, how are, given the, the land development code update work is going on right now, how are you communicating that to those authors in a way that we can take that and make those very real recommendations for um, the code change. So I think, and correct me if I'm wrong, Jeff can point this out. One of the things that we we appointed to or we received was the was the Mark manual, the Mark BMP manual, and that's what we refer developers to now. 
So the only thing we've only got a few things that are actually codified that say, hey, you have to do this if you have, you know, and I, I alluded to it earlier about the excess parking that go to the mark manual and use that. One of the things that I have said um, is if we're going to get the developing community to do this, the municipality, the city of Lawrence is going to have to take the lead on some of these and say, hey, this is what we're going to do. We did some of that at the, the police facility. But I think the next major one we're going to see is when we do the project on Jayhawk Watershed that we're doing pervious pavers on that project. And I like that one because I want to look at something that's going to be actually maintainable and sustainable for the and actually get done what you want. So pervious or porous pavement is probably your best option because it's easy to maintain and Right now, I already have a tool because we have a vacuum truck in our fleet that I can help maintain that. Now, having said that, there's lots of detention basins around town. There's 160 of them, 170 of them that we have, and the majority of those are open basins. We probably got less than maybe a dozen that are underground, but those are actually best management practices too because in the in the short term, when you get a rainfall event in those, and as the they meter out through the the uh, outfall. A lot of those contaminants or particulates, particularly on the smaller storms, will will filter themselves out. So what we say in in stormwater is that first flush or that first half inch of rain. That's usually what picks all of your grit and your motor oils and all your automotive fluids, and that's what actually you know takes things downstream. It's one of the reasons that we have the stamp or the fish on all of our new curb inlets. It says you know no dumping drains to the river. I was amazed when I first took this job how many times I got the question, "How come you have that on there?" Well, most people under thought erroneously that once it went into the curb inlet, it went to the wastewater treatment plant. Well, it doesn't. And that, in fact, we've got a program, our INI or infiltration uh, program is trying to keep uh, excess stormwater out of our sanitary sewer so we don't have to pay to uh, treat that water. So the idea is you, you keep as much of that out of there as possible. And thankfully, we are a separate sewer systems in Lawrence. There's some, you know, larger municipalities, KCK, KC Mo, Philadelphia, all of the bigger, older cities that have combined storm sewer and sewer systems. So when they get heavy rainfall events, all of that, including the sewage, are outfalls directly into the rivers. And so there are lots of them have different consent orders that they need to get those cleaned up. Thankfully, we don't have that in our city. Matt, do you mind if I ask? The status quo, you know, pre-green infrastructure, what happens to like automotive runoff um, that goes into the storm sewers? Does it just go, it just goes straight it into the river? Is there any mitigation yeah. at all? No, that there's okay. no. So the idea is you try and, so that's one of the reasons that we've switched from salt and we've gone to things that are more um, environmental friendly, like the brine and then some of the beet juice because that keeps temperatures from freezing, but then we're not oversaturating our riparian areas with a, a lot of chlorine. So there's a lot of maintenance things that we've changed as well. So, but yes, no, if I'll get, uh, I'll get uh, uh, emails or phone calls from concerned citizens about, hey, my neighbor's got a really leaky uh, car and they've got automotive fluid and it's just leaking all over. So, you know, the best I can do is we we try and notify that person and say, hey, you, you need to do something about your car. I don't really have anything 
uh, effective teeth with that. Our stormwater pollution prevention ordinance, number 7373, it, it speaks to that because you're not supposed to discharge anything into the uh, uh, storm sewer system that's not clean water, so to speak. You know, the only the only uh, exception that I can think of right off the top of my head is if the, uh, the water they're using to fight a fire, you know, because that'll run off the property and then straight in. But other than that, I mean, that's and then, then that's why we say, hey, no more car washes unless you're in a, you know, controlled environment. So everything coming off the car, including the soap, goes into a grassy area and can be discharged or do it at a car wash. Because, yeah, and Chad had to deal with that, who was the previous stormwater engineer, who is now the public works director for Douglas County. Chad had to be the bad guy and shut down all of the girls and boys clubs and the, you know, the Boy Scout troops that were trying to raise money with car washes and and poo-poo their ideas, so to speak, and go, you can do it. You just can't do it on a parking lot that has uncontrolled runoff. So I know we're at a hard stop, so I'll shut up. Any other questions? Um, I can ask it later if we've got to get out. If I, you want to, feel free to email those to yeah. me. Yes, I, I will. I will email them. Thank you. And, and my email address is mbond at lawrenceks.org. So it's just mbond and then every, like everybody else's domain. So if, yes, if you have other questions and you want more clarification, please feel free to email me. I knew we were going to be uh, pressed for time on this when I heard how much we were covering. And Luke did a fantastic job on the floodplain management. So, well, I, I want to thank uh, you both for um, uh, providing that wonderful information today. Before I, the vice chair wraps this up, I just wanted to make an update to my announcements earlier. I misspoke about our February meeting. Um, our offices will be closed on Monday, February 20th for President's Day. So we will only meet on that Wednesday, February 22nd. So it'll be one meeting in February. Okay. So pack a snack on Wednesday. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, if there are no further questions or business uh, <clears throat> today, um, folks, we're uh, just a couple minutes before the top of the hour. Uh, just, uh, again, a, a solid thank you to Matt and to Luke. Uh, what a great. Uh, job presenting some pretty sophisticated topics. Uh, very glad to have uh, you guys on this team. But with that, uh, everyone, uh, um, have a great rest of the week, and we'll see you uh, here in a couple weeks at the commission meeting. Thank, Thank you. you. Uh,